It's not for fame or fortune that most deem necessary. No, I invest to don a crest for work less ordinary. Nor be it want of medals, cap or polished shoes, but a calling to help others who have everything to lose. To face hell's dancing angels and suppress them with each stride. To search resolve from deep within as loved ones weep outside. To stand with pride and dignity as comrades we remember. Be it pipes lament that fill sad air or silence in September. And may those names that have been etched in brass or granite stone haunt me in the darkness so I never fight alone. And if a colleague's head hangs low from tasting tragedy, let me offer up my shoulder for them to lean on me. But when amazing grace is played, alas, for none but me, lower the flag, but raise a glass, for I'm not far from thee. I'm gathered with the old flames, looking down from God's great height, on call if aid be needed to join you in the fight. Welcome to the Fit to Fight Fire podcast, and today we have Editor-in-Chief of Fire Engineering, Dave Rhodes. Sir, I know we've been trying to connect, and you've been very flexible. I appreciate that. The whole adapt and overcome mindset of the fire service has been applied to this podcast, so I appreciate your flexibility. I know you're a busy man, but I know our listeners are really looking forward to hearing your perspective on some of the challenges we have in the fire service right now. I was inspired by your speech at FDIC. Although I wasn't there, I had an opportunity to listen to it afterward and specifically the message you shared when it came to mental health and how so much of the mental health we're facing in the fire service may not be the calls. It's the hypocritical leadership. It's the targeting. It's the things that are go completely against what the fire service represents, which is honor, integrity, responsibility. So I appreciated that message. I'm hoping we could touch on that today. And looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, and uh, do a great job with the podcast. And your uh, your posts are pretty inspiring themselves uh, for the most for the most part. There, I see you've been sharing quite a bit of uh, content from different sources, and uh, anything that motivates folks is uh, is a plus in my book. Yeah, I appreciate that, Chief, and. You know, oftentimes, I mean, the majority of it is just the conversations I need to have with myself uh, to prevent myself from taking that path of least resistance, that human nature. So that's those conversations, those posts are coming from me holding myself accountable, and hopefully it's helping others out there. So that means a lot coming from you. Uh, I want to talk about just recently, uh, the T-shirt management seven years later article came out, and uh, it is phenomenal. And I know there was an article that preceded that. So I'd like to kind of talk about that experience and what that what what took place uh, from the article you initially wrote and some of the challenges you faced and some of the lessons you learned through that experience. Yeah, sure. So going back, I guess it would probably go all the way back to like 2014. I was doing a monthly column called the Hump Day SOS for Fire Rescue Magazine, which is a part of the whole Clarion uh Fire Engineering, FDIC, all the brands. And uh, it was a print magazine at the time. And so that monthly column was somewhat of a, uh, it was a little editorial, a little bit educational, 
um, some of the articles we did there. I did the five-part series on uh, fire science for dummies like me, explaining <laughs> some of the research and, and all. And a lot of them were, had a little bit of satire in them, but there was always some type of, uh, some type of lesson. And uh, sometime in 2014, looking through the internet, I saw a video of uh, a couple of firefighters that had done just a little, little internet video, and they were, I think there was three of them, and uh, they were in their in their fire station bay, and they had a huge pile of t-shirts in front of them, and they were doing a parody song of uh, of uh, the brother where art thou movie song man of constant sorrow and so they were singing about they they rewrote the lyrics they had the beards on the guy was playing the guitar and they totally rewrote the lyrics and and the message was that you know you get a new fire chief new fire chief comes in changes the logo probably to the same logo of his previous fire department or something like that and they change the t-shirt and you get two or three t-shirts in your allotment and then you know, you're wearing whatever T-shirt you happen to have, and it's a big deal because you're not in the right T-shirt at the right moment. And then I got to thinking about the whole uniform issue of being practical. And, uh, you know, when I came on in the in the mid-'80s, like we had to wear patent leather shoes, you know. And then within a couple of years, that changed to where we could wear, like, the Rocky boots and, you know, a little more tactical-type stuff. And the police were in the same boat. You know, they were wearing, you know, button up shirts, patent leather shoes. And I always had that thought in my mind. It's like, now, if I was a police officer, how in the world they expect me to chase somebody down in patent leather shoes and all this gear, you know? So our uniform slowly became a little more tactical, but some places were a little, little more uh, strict on the uniform than others. And so I decided to write about it because obviously it was a big fire department issue. If somebody's making a video about it, it's not just their department. Most things transfer, you know, across boundary lines. So, um, I, I came up with the, with the title t-shirt management because it's like, all right, there are a lot of supervisor officers, managers that don't really know the ins and outs, the tactics. They're not good instructors or whatever. And it was almost like if you were in that, if you were in that uh, in that camp, then you would focus your attention on something that you could manage, like the T-shirt. And you know there was no there was no contributions to your growth as an employee or your training, your tactics. It was just follow the rules, and you're you're not wearing the right T-shirt. And and it, for some people it was a big deal. For some people it was a balance. So in the article, my intent was to point that out. But then also flip the switch. So I hit the I hit the management side pretty hard with you're going overboard uh, on on this at some some points. But I flipped the switch and I said, and for the departments that do allow you to wear a t-shirt, why is it that the guys have to only wear the rattiest, stinkiest ones with holes in it and and all? And so it was sort of a a jab at both sides, you know, the labor and the management side of it. And then I had like a satirical uh, uh, SOP written 
that was really short and simple. And it was like, you know, firefighters will be allowed to wear T-shirts at any time other than building inspections, community meetings, staff meetings, so forth. Um, You will be allowed to wear them at the station. You'll be allowed to wear them on calls under your gear. You'll be allowed to wear them doing hydrants, so on and forth. And anyone who violates this procedure will face the ultimate penalty of being assigned to headquarters for six months and have to wear a button-up shirt, a tie, and not be allowed to respond to calls. And so it was like, okay, that'll uh, that'll show that it's you know it's definitely satirical, and uh, it got a lot of traction. And uh, it was probably of all the articles. That, that I've done that was was uh, shared on online. It probably still has the most looks and and likes and you know downloads, whatever platform it was on. And uh, I, at that time, I was also traveling and teaching, and uh, I went to um, speak at a conference in Wichita, Kansas, and we stopped by the fire station. I went to the bathroom, and that article was like taped up on the bathroom wall and then i had a friend of mine from seattle call and he goes man this is our department 100 percent." and so we actually did a special version of the graphic and changed it to where we had their logo on it and and uh it was all in good fun but it was uh you know it definitely resonated with the rank and file in the fire service that yeah and you know people misinterpret it sometimes uh uh, I've seen some comments as like, well, you need to pay attention to your uniform and, you know, you need to dress. And that wasn't the point of the article. So some of those uh, people didn't quite get it. wasn't saying that there's not a time and a place for spit, shine and polish and all. But it's not every day, 24 hours a day in the fire station. You need to be wearing something that's comfortable. Uh, 100% cotton T-shirt is cheap. You're able to show a little company pride and having, you know, your logo, that kind of thing. So, uh, so it was, it was extremely popular and I got a lot of great feedback on it. Well, that feedback that you got was from the firefighters in the firehouses, but I know your own department had some concerns with the article and that led to some resistance and a season of adversity for you. And um, that happens, right? Like you put yourself out there. That's just part of the deal when you share a message or you share something that has truth to it. And truth sometimes hurts. And some of your uh, leaders in your organization had an issue with it. And how did that affect you? Talk to me about how you weathered that, I'd call it a storm or that challenging part of your career. Yeah. So that would have been 2016. And, uh, one of our firefighters had his own website and he had, he had like either reposted that article. It was, uh, like I said, it was a fire, a fire rescue article and it would, it would be posted either on fire engineering or firefighter nation. So he grabbed the link and reposted it. And, uh, the chief at the time happened to see it and didn't like it. Didn't ask any questions about it, but just didn't like it. And, uh, there was a, I guess there was a, a little bit of an investigation to find out where it came from, that kind of thing. And then, uh, you know, here I was, a whew, let's see, I made battalion chief in 2004. So this was 2016, you know, so I'd been a battalion chief for quite a while. I was the senior, senior battalion chief, you know, at that time. 
And uh, um, I was riding as the shift commander that day and got called to the office, which was normal, go down for a meeting or two. And uh, they scurried me into our internal affairs and fire chief walked in, sat down and said, uh, you're terminated effective immediately and uh, got up and walked out. And uh, that was that was it. So I got uh, escorted back to the to the station I was filling in at to clean out my stuff and then uh, drove driven over to uh, my home station where I could clean out my locker. And then that was pretty much it. Uh, you know, uh, got, got the escort, got watched, you know, while I was cleaning out my locker and got to say goodbye to the guys. And, uh, um, and then, you know, on the, there was on the way home, you're like, what in the world? I had a little bit of an idea because a couple of people had given me a heads up that something might be brewing, but I mean, not to the termination stage, just like, you know, somebody may call you in and ask you about, which, you know, would have been, if, if anybody had a problem with it, a good conversation would have, you know, cleared it up. Not, not everybody likes everything everybody does, but you would think that a good, you know, person to person conversation would happen like, Hey, I didn't particularly like this article. What, you, are you talking about us or me or whatever? Give me an opportunity to explain, talk about it, point out the other side of the article that probably got glossed over once, you know, the person got angry. But uh, obviously they felt that it was a direct attack on on them, which, uh, which it wasn't. Uh, but if they felt that, then there must have been some some guilt there, you know. Well, you take me back to when you hear those words, you're terminated effective immediately and not to consider, not that that was right in itself, but not to consider your body of work leading up to that. Like this is an individual who has dedicated himself to our department, to the fire service. We know him. We know his intentions. I think intentions is a a big part of the whole conversation. Like what was your intentions to it? Completely skip that, all of that and go right to termination. Like, talk to us a little bit about where your mind was at, because we'll get more into your background when it comes to the Georgia Smoke Diver program and being mm-hmm. being the smoke daddy. But I mean, you're you're a man who developed resilience over your career by doing hard things, being in difficult situations, handling adversity. Like, what was that first like few thoughts in your mind? And then you're driving over to the firehouse to get your stuff, and now you're most likely you're going to have to have a conversation with your family. I mean, those yeah. are that's a difficult string of events. So where was your mind at? Like what, what type of, uh, headspace were you in? Um, a shock, I guess is the best way to describe it. It's almost a numbing shock. Like you, you're, is this real? Because like there really hasn't been any true consequences to that time. I mean, you still, you know, you still got your car, your house, your bank accounts, still got your money in it. And also you, you haven't suffered in any any way immediately, but it's just sort of numbing. You know, you're like, is this happening? You know, and you got to kind of have to stay focused on driving. Don't let your mind mind water so you don't know, run off the road or, or run into the back of somebody. That kind of thing. Um, obviously, I jumped on the on the phone and and started making some uh, some phone calls, but. Uh, yeah, it was uh it was a it was a long ride home. Um 
And as I explained in the article, you know, there was a few people that I called. Obviously, I called called my wife and let her know what was going on. She was kind of in the same level of shock, you know, and she was phenomenal during the whole whole thing. It's like, look, we're going to be okay. She was working and and had benefits and all that. that you know, would have taken some work, but we could we we could have gotten by while I figured out, you know, what to do. Um, of course, you know how things work out. We had just built a, a new house, and I don't think we'd been in it maybe a year, maybe something like that. So we had that going. All our kids were still in in uh, in grade school, high school, and so uh, all of their activities, gymnastics, dance, you know, all of the things that are that uh, that you work to support to do so um once i got home and kind of settled in and it hit then we kind of went straight into planning mode it's like okay we got this option we got that option we can do this worst case you know right to the point of uh um i was fortunate enough when i built this house i kept my other house as a rental house and so it was like well we could sell this house and this is all within the first few hours you know, it's like, well, we, if we need to, we could sell this house and we could move back into the other house if we had to. So that would be, you know, something that would sustain us for a while. And then word started getting out and I started getting a few calls. People were like, Hey man, you want to come be our training chief or you want to come be our fire chief or whatever. And it was like too soon to, to really, uh, you know, grasp any of it. But, uh, yeah, it was difficult to sleep. Um, Got a lot of phone calls. Social media blew up immediately. And there was, you know, that was a, that was a, a level of support too that was, you know, encouraging that, uh, but you know, in the back of your mind that that's like short lived. Cause, you know, it's like, uh, it's kind of like the headlines, you know, for the day and everybody's there and yeah, they support you and stuff, but yeah, they're not really like there to support a lot of the things. They're just providing you some good moral support. So that was good. Um, and, uh, yeah, we just went right into planning mode. And then luckily, um, I guess it was about a week before the attorney, um, had really been able to communicate with the city. And ironically, the city attorney didn't know anything about it. Um, this was strictly done, you know, in house. And so, uh, once some of the details started, surfacing i think i forget what the timeline is but you have so many you know obviously we're like two weeks behind on pay so you still have a paycheck coming and then your insurance um you know is gonna run out at a certain point and then you're offered like a cobra option where you got to pay you know ten thousand dollars a month to stay on the insurance or whatever so we were like working through some of that and i i got to the point where um, and, you know, luckily, because of the labor laws and all, they could not take my pension from me. Um, and so I was at the point where, OK, like within the next day or two, I need to decide if I'm going to actually retire and start drawing a pension at a substantial penalty because I was, about, I guess, about five years early. And so it was kind of going through that process and not getting a whole lot of help from the city at that point and answering questions and that kind of thing. And then uh, once the city attorney had a chance to talk with the department and then talk with uh, with my attorney, 
um, it was kind of a, hey, we need to know something by Friday because he's got to make some very important decisions. And the city attorney came back and said, um, tell him he's still on the payroll. He still has his benefits and we are going to work something out. And so that was kind of a risky time, too, because it's like, are they being truthful or am I going to pass the deadline, not have insurance, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, um, my attorney assured me that he trusted the guy and that he was, you know, negotiating in good faith and and all. And I guess probably 30, 45 days go by. I'm still getting paycheck. Uh, You know, insurance is still good. and. I was going about my business. I think I went to a UL board meeting out in Colorado, uh, of which, you know, in typical firehouse form, everybody knew what was going. So they, we were in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and uh, one of my buddies there, Sean Ducrane, went to every store he could and got applications and brought them back uh, <laughs> to me and were putting them on the desk and uh, trying to get me a job. Um, <laughs> So I think I went to a couple of those. I had a couple of other meetings. I think uh, I went to, um, actually, when I got the phone call from one of the deputy chiefs, uh, said, hey, the fire chief wants to meet with you. And, of course, my attorney had already called me, and he posed a question to me. He was like, hey, would you be willing to, uh, would you be willing to come back to work as a captain making battalion chiefs pay? And I just busted out laughing. And uh, I said, of course. And so, you know, that was kind of the, the deal they had worked out because I was in an appointed position. So, um, you know, in our, in our policies, you could demote, um, without disciplinary action, but you couldn't take away the money, uh, from the person. So like if a new regime came in and wanted to change out the people, they could do it, but it was going to cost them. There would be a little bit of, you know, pain to it, uh. But for disciplinary reasons, they they could take money. Um, so I agreed, you know, to that and came back and ended up, you know, going to a station as a captain for a while. And uh, ironically, um, you know, one of the funny moments of the thing is uh, getting ready to come back. They're telling me where I'm going to report. And the fire chief asked me, he says, uh, you do have captain's uniforms, don't you? And I'm like, no, like I haven't been a captain in like, you know, 14 years or whatever it was at the time, maybe longer than that. And, uh, he goes, Oh, okay. Well, we got to get you some uniforms. So I went home for another two weeks and sat waiting on two uniforms to get made that had captain's, uh, insignia on. And then I was able to, to start at the station and, uh, and I worked as a captain while things were, were still going. And then, um, without getting into too much detail, there ended up being, there was never any disciplinary action given uh, to me. Uh, I never got, you know, there's a process you got to go through. They got to tell you what rules you violated. Do you get a chance to be heard and all that? None of that ever happened. And, uh, the city attorney got really sick and had to go on leave. And, Ironically, like within a week after he went on leave, all of a sudden, uh, a big chunk started coming out of my paycheck. And so that actually led to a lawsuit. And, uh, um, and that was a, 
about a two year process of, you know, going through all that, but it was, a, it was filed in federal court and, uh, um, and then that's where it got into, you know, a lot of back and forth negotiations and all that stuff, which obviously I can't go into, but right. it all worked out. Um, that chief retired and left before it was completely settled. Uh, the new fire chief came in and cleaned it up really quick. Um, we came to an agreement on everything and, and then, you know, I went back to my chief's position and, uh, and, you know, pretty much returned, turned to normal, uh, with everything other than just, uh, the trauma of the, of the three year ordeal. Well, that's the part, that's the part that's difficult because that's three years of your life. And I know that you probably took those three years and pulled a lot of lessons out of those three years that have served you well today. And my question to you is, we hear this, not exact story, but we hear this similar story throughout the fire service. It's firefighters that are invested and into the job that tend to end up in these positions as opposed to somebody who sat in the recliner for 30 years, didn't do anything. Radar's never on them. No one even really knows that they're at the firehouse. You know, what do you think are some of the things that you've noticed? Because I know you, you've been around this country. You've been outside the country. You've talked to firefighters all over that are going through that same thing, and it, whether it's getting in trouble for teaching at a conference or writing an article or just trying to change the, the nozzles at their fire department. What, what, what do you think we're, we're seeing in the traits of those type of administrators, because I hate to call them leaders, administrators that are kind of common when you start seeing this type of behavior. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I think it's, I don't think it's anything new. I think it's gone on. I think it's just human nature. It's a, it's just a byproduct of, of human nature. And, uh, and we, we used to talk about it all the time that, uh, you know, you could do a 30 year career and never lift a finger and never get in trouble but if you're out there volunteering to help with the recruits if you're working on four or five committees you're putting forth stuff and you're trying to to you know you're going to training you're bringing back ideas and all and it's not a hundred percent but there's a there's a lot of places that the leadership can't they can't process that or handle it and I almost think it's more of a, their reaction is more of an insecurity than it is anything else. And, uh, I always used to joke and say, it's like, look, I don't want the fire chief's job. I don't want any part of the fire chief's job, but what I do want is to be able to do my job. And, you know, I had a, a history in the organization. Like I, I had become union president pretty early in my career as a lieutenant and, uh, served at eight years and there were some pretty tumultuous years um, where we were fighting a lot of things, a lot of equipment and safety issues, staffing, pay, you know, all the typical uh, labor issues, but it was, it was pretty bad. Uh, trucks breaking down on the way to calls, um, breathing apparatus that was malfunctioning, you know, due to lack of maintenance and things like that. And so it was a fight and, it, and, and without a contract and without any, means to have a formal process then the mayor and the fire chief they'd either met with you or 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 they wouldn't and in our case they wouldn't 
And so we had had to revert to the only tool we had, which was media. You know, so we did a really strong media campaign. And of course, they hate that. They hate that. So, so I think, you know, I don't know for sure what all was in, in the head of the fire chief at the time, but some of that obviously may have held over, even though that person wasn't the chief at the same time. When you're in those roles, you're having to make tough decisions. You're the face of a lot of the problems and, and people hold that. We had a culture of, of holding grudges for decades. You know, uh, it was not uncommon to have, uh, you know, an administration that would, you know, get into place and they'd be like a name would come across their desk and they'd be like, that guy put hot sauce on my food when I was at station so-and-so move him to the airport or, you know, what that, that stuff happened. You know, it's, it's funny you think about it, but like it was that personal to, to some people. So I think people. Uh, and I'm not perfect, so, you know, I don't claim to be. But I think in those situations, when they see somebody out there, whether they're teaching at a conference or they're writing articles or whatever, I almost feel like they're a little bit jealous of that. And and the, and the biggest thing, I guess, more so than the articles in the conference is your reputation with the firefighters. And if you have a really good reputation with the firefighters and they listen to you, then some of them want to suppress your influence, your ability to influence them, because they want they want every they want to have that same respect, and it doesn't just come automatically with a promotion. Um, and if they don't have that, they either try to team up with you to to use you to to the good for that reputation. And sometimes they just want you to blindly agree with whatever it is so that the troops will agree with it. And you have to tell them, uh, well, I won't have that reputation very long if I, if I go along with this, but you know, but let me help you figure out how we can get this accomplished or, or whatever. But I think, I think it's just, a, uh, you know, it's, it's an insecurity that they feel threatened, uh, that somebody's either going to be more popular or more respected or, or whatever it is. And since they have power, then they just, you know, uh, they, they, uh, they use a sword, you know, to get rid of you. They kill you, uh, uh, career wise is what they try to do. And it can be done by, you know, controlling your station assignment, putting you somewhere where you don't want to be or rat holing you somewhere where you don't have influence, uh, limiting your exposure you know, to the folks. So I don't know. I, I, I've never been able to figure it out, but that's just, uh, you know, that's just some of the things that, that I think about when I think about how some of that works. Well, you hit a lot of key points. It's uh, the insecurities big. And, and I think a lot of the chiefs, administrators that operate that way uh, really I don't believe they ever really took the time to be good at any of the positions they held as they made their way to the top, preventing them from actually earning that credibility and that respect through the ranks. And when they get there, I don't think they value all the positions as much as we'd like Mm -hmm. to see because they didn't hold them long enough. Typically, they got the position and they're already studying for the next one. And then on top of that, when that insecurity sets in, it becomes more about their feelings than the mission. Because if you look at the firefighters that typically end up in the position like you did, 
they're the ones you want showing up to your home. They're the ones that are into the job. They're the ones that are doing it in a way that brings honor to our profession. And yeah, I, I think everything you touched on is the common thread or the common characteristics that we see in, in these firefighters that are being treated the way they are by their administrations, as opposed to you look at like a chief, like your uh, chief uh, Thompson out there in the colony where he takes these firefighters that have talent and they have skill sets and they have passion for the job. And he puts them in position to showcase that. Mm-hmm. And with and that ultimately, yeah. And that what ultimately does is he's a great fire chief because of that. He's like the coach of a football team. He's putting people in those positions and I'd love to see more of that. I think, I think it's possible. I think it's not something that we can't get to. I think it's the awareness um, when you spoke about it at FDIC on that type of platform was very important. I think about having conversations like this on podcasts are very important. So now we're seven years later from that event and you reflected on it in the article. And I love the, the uh, example you used with the movie Braveheart, one of my favorite movies. And yep. kind of talk about what inspired you seven years later to write about something that was pretty three years of your life, consumed three years of your life. And, you know, what were some of the lessons that you shared in the article and some of the things that uh, inspired you to kind of bring that back up? Well, um, obviously, there's not a you can't go into great detail and in eight or nine hundred words. It's just a one page chill. And a lot of things, even a lot of the stuff we've talked about was intentionally left out because what I didn't want is I didn't want it to be a uh, look at me, pity me, poor me kind of article. I wanted it to have a lesson. And the lesson that that I tried to get across was if you're in a position of power, don't make those kind of life altering career ending decisions out of emotion. It, you know, it, it, nobody Nobody's liked 100% by anybody on, on either side of it. But when you come to something as serious as as terminating somebody or even even suspending somebody, um, you know, and 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 having that on their record, um, a lot of things are cut and dry. You know, you're late to work twice or three times or whatever, and you get a 12 hour suspension or whatever, whatever your policy is. It's like nobody. Nobody really complains about that. The people know they're guilty and they they don't like it, but they know it's part of the process. But when when things happen, when people get transferred because they don't like what somebody said or they don't like how somebody looks, I mean, that's just another form of discrimination. And, um, you know, you can you can color it and flavor it however you want. But it's it's a personal vendetta against either a person or an idea or whatever. And if we talk about diversity uh, in the fire service, I mean, diversity of thought is huge. And so um, when you when you transfer somebody out of emotion or suspend them or or fire them, you know, at at the extreme level, then it's not going to do anything for you because you're going to lose in the long run. And I guess there's the gamble of, well, we've got more resources, so we'll, you know, we'll starve them out. You know, our attorneys are on salary and we can drag this out five, six years and they'll have to spend thousands of dollars. So, 
you know, that's the whole reason like labor unions and, and things were formed is to take a little bit from the masses to create a power that can protect, you know, the, the, the little guy. And, uh, um, you know, thank goodness that was the case, you know, for me is, is, uh, um, the union stepped up and I'd been former union president and uh, it was the union lawyer that, that got involved. So, yeah, I think when you make those decisions out of emotion, um, it's very selfish because it makes you, you know, you feel good as the fire chief that, you know, you got rid of this guy that either he didn't like you or you didn't like him or he said this or looked at you the wrong way. And, you, and you, you know, it, it, you feel very powerful. But, you know, in the end, it actually damages you more than it damages the person that you're trying to to damage. Because if, you know, I, like I said in the article, I was fortunate I had. Uh, a lot of resiliency, a lot of support networks, a lot of resources. And uh, I actually enjoyed, um, other than the just the emotional part of, you know, the being demoted and all that, it was fun to be a captain again and, and ride the engine and, and go on calls. And it gave me a different perspective that, you know, I always say once you're out of a position two, three years, you start to lose that edge of the day-to-day routine and uh so it kind of re re-centered my thoughts about what the station officer role was and uh how the communications back and forth between the battalion you know you think you're doing a good job as as the battalion but then you come back and you're on the other end and you're like man how come we don't know this or how come we don't know that so uh it was good it, it, it was it was uh it was good to to experience that and then go back to the battalion chief role because it was sort of a fresh, uh, you know, a fresh look at how to communicate with the, with the company officers and, and the, and the, there's always cycles of different obstacles that you overcome in an organization. And so that's one of the other leadership's mistakes you make is like, okay, you're trying to solve the problems that were problems when you were a company officer and maybe they're not problems anymore. So you got to communicate and find out, hey, what are you guys dealing with? How can I help you do your job better? Or what resources do you need? Because they may not be the same uh, as they were. So that that part of it was was uh, enlightening, you know, to be back on a first due call or, or, you know, the pains of running medical calls where you weren't really needed. And you you lose touch with that, you know, so quick. So. You're pulling the good out of a bad situation by finding that perspective and appreciating the fact that you had to go back to captain and pulling all that good out of a bad situation is resilience. And you use the word resilience. We know that you are a big part and to this day still are of the Georgia Smoke Diver Program. And I, from an outsider looking in, uh, it shows how it prepares a firefighter to be a better firefighter and to be prepared for the unknown and to think under stress and the physical components of being a firefighter, the mental stuff. But I'd have to imagine like your investment and your time with the Georgia Smoke Diver program and the resilience that you gained from the first time you made it through the program to your instructing the program and seeing the human behavior and all the things you've experienced. I'd have to imagine that contributed to your ability to endure three years of uh, a difficult season at yeah, your department. De- definitely. and. 
you know, that's really what the program is totally about. Um, and we even tell the candidates that on the, on the first day is it's truly a course to teach you how to deal with adversity and how to overcome adversity. And there's no screening test that is able to predict with 100% accuracy if you're going to be successful in it or not. The only test is to physically get out there and be tested. And it's the same in uh, special forces training. It's the same in a lot of things that are super physically and mentally tough. And if they ever figure out the test that does predict predict success, then that person's going to be, you know, extremely wealthy. Um, but there are some, some tests that you can do that if a person can't complete it, you know their chance of success is very low um, physically. But it's very hard to test the mental uh, component. And so with our qualification test, which actually we we have scheduled for this coming Saturday, day after tomorrow. Um, those are very minimal skills that if you can't prepare yourself and show up and and perform those skills, then we know you're not going to be successful. But if you come in and ace them, and this is a competition because there's a scoring system, and we take the top uh, the, the top 25 in-state um, candidates off of that, and uh, and it's only about a fifty percent pass ratio. So we know physically, most of them have the skills to do it. But the majority of the people that don't finish are because they mentally can't go to those places that we that we take them and they quit. Um, some are discharged on performance because they can't meet the objective. Um, but the majority of them just flat up quit within the first couple of days. So when you see that, would you see a candidate who comes in, they ace the, they ace the, the qualification test and they get ranked in the top three or whatever that is, even that you're saying, even that is not going to be a predictor of success. I mean, obviously the chances are higher, but you probably have had people in that range still um, have to come back and, and give it another go or two because they weren't successful the first time. I think that's amazing because sometimes we think like just fitness alone could carry us. And that's the, that's the message of fit to fight fire is showing up fit. You know, that's the foundation mm -hmm. of a prepared firefighter, but there's a whole mental side that you're tapping into that there's no, it's, I, I can't think logistically how anyone else could uh, even fire departments themselves, like to get people to that point of wanting to quit nothing left in the tank and then having them continue to move forward is really what we talked about with your experience. Even though that wasn't a physical experience, it wasn't a, a, a workout you were doing or an evolution. Three years of that is challenging. So yeah. I, I think it's important that people hear like programs like this aren't just about the fire service, aren't no. just about, it's about making you a more resilient human being. And chief, would you agree? Like, Resilience, that's one of the probably the most sure ways to build it is through putting yourself in difficult situations and learning yeah. how to overcome them. Absolutely. And you can see it. Uh, nothing's 100%, but you can see, um, you know, people, you see people that have kind of had it easy or been lucky 
you know, and, 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 you know, we, we put it all on the table the first day. We're like, look, this is, this course is not the instructors against you. This course is you against yourself. And yes, the instructors are going to be hard. There's going to be high standards, but the real magic is that it's you against yourself. And, uh, and we just happened to be using firefighter drills to accomplish that adversity. So you are getting, you're building some tactical skills and, and all, especially the first couple of days. But those days are desert, are designed to like wear you down to the point where there is no gas or very little in the tank, but you still have to function at a very high level. And we use the example, if you want to build a big bicep, then you have to tear it down, let it heal. You tear it down, you let it heal, and it grows back bigger each time. And there's different techniques and things to use. Well, how do you do that with your mind? And the only way to do it is to put yourself in situations, very controllable, very safe situations. Um, that's why the instructor to student ratio is so huge. You know, we have like 100 instructors, and by, by Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday, there's only 20, 25 students. But it takes that many people to make sure that everything is being done within the parameters of what we want to do. And uh, we tell them this is this is a life lesson class. Like, yeah, you'll be a better firefighter, but you're going to be you're going to be more in tune with yourself, what you're capable of. Uh, it's going to give you confidence, but it's also going to take away that um, that fog time to where when something happens and you're just sort of like I don't know what to do like I don't know should I move should I stay still whatever is you you revert to okay I've been in a similar situation to this and I kept moving you know along the wall or I, I called a mayday or I got on the radio or whatever it is you you, you are and people come back to us you have to come through the course to be an instructor and becoming an instructor is a whole nother level of that so it's one thing to to make it through the course but then to come back as an instructor and invest the time that it takes to to get up to like a lead instructor is 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 additional years and time and we've had numerous people either write us letters after the class um come back as an instructor and tell us and you know, it, it sounds sappy and crazy, but it's like guys will come up and say, this class saved my marriage. And you're like, what? And they're like, yeah. And then they'll go into the details of what they actually experienced and learned. You know, um, this this class changed my whole career in that I realized that, you know, I wasn't putting in the necessary time to become an expert in this area that I needed to, to be fair to myself, to my family, you know, to my crew. And so, uh, it is, it's, it's life skills that don't get taught. And interestingly enough, you know, uh, when I took over the, the lead in the program back in officially 2005, but I'd actually was in charge of the the last class in 1995 and then we didn't have a class for 10 years so so going to 2005 I spent 
about a year and a half, you know, really revamping what it was we wanted to accomplish, doing a lot of reading on decision making and, and all. And what I would find, and especially looking at a lot of the military examples, are the big, huge gym rat guy with a million tattoos, a square jaw, and thighs that are the size of my waist. Um, as a general rule, they don't make it. The kid that is in good shape is lean but not too lean to the point that there's no reserves but it's just regularly fit but maybe grew up in an in a orphanage that guy makes it every time <laughs> and that's because of the mental yeah. yeah it's it's the mental so you can you know you can overtrain um physically for it and you know uh be gassed by the time you get to class but if you're in and and you need to be in athletic shape to have a chance because your your suffering occurs at night back in the room when you can't sleep and you can't eat and you know you got to get back up at 5 30 in the morning and put on that wet gear and it's 22 degrees outside and the wind's blowing and you're going to have to do PT for two and a half hours. Um, and, you know, little man in your head is going, there's a warm shower in bed at home, and you can go back to the fire station tomorrow, and you don't, you don't have to do this. There's nothing. You're not going to get erased. You're not going to get anything. And so, you know, it's, it's that struggle. It's the yin and yang. It's the struggle of, you know, the internal turmoil that's like telling you that you don't need to suffer. You know, it's, it's a defense mechanism. You know, it's your fight or flight. And, uh, and we tell everybody, we're like, look, don't quit in the middle of the night. At least come back and get started in PT. And if you can't do it, then quit during PT. But don't leave in the middle of the night. You'll regret it. And, you know, Inevitably, it happens. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's it's a whole six day course, long long hours of overcoming adversity. And when you finish, um, you know it's 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 so mental because a guy will will drag himself to the finish line and think that okay, if they tell me I'm wrong this time, then that that that's it. I got. I, I, I can't even walk. I'm like, here's my, here's my nut and bolt. You know, it's got to be put together in a certain order. They go through in the dark and search and they have to find and assemble this thing and they come out and they can't, you know, it's all they can do to stand up straight, whatever. And as soon as you tell them they passed, they could run a marathon. <laughs> right wow. at that moment they could go. Yeah. yeah. And it's a That's switch. amazing. It's a yeah. switch. And, you know, uh, I've heard it. I've heard it described as a governor that, you know, to protect yourself, you have a governor in your head that is not is, is telling you, you know, you're you're built to go 150 miles an hour. But that governor won't let you go. But like 70 miles an hour. And that and is a you, powerful, powerful statement you just made. Well, you said once they find out they finished, they have this whole nother gear like and that's what you're teaching them to tap into. Yes. 
that is something that most people will never experience, but you're teaching them through this to tap into that. And you can't do it on duty. You can't do it. I mean, you, you could get into a real life situation of fire. You could be trapped. You could have some things that you would tap into that, but you can't get there on a regular program basis unless you go through the whole process, you know, from Sunday through, you know, Thursday, Friday, you're, you're, you're definitely getting into it, but we have to get you to, we have to get you to Wednesday to even understand it, you know? So yeah, it's huge and it's, it's, it's powerful. And that's where, you know, it's the same, it's a different, it's a different level of physical work. But it's no different than the things that these ultra runners and, um, you know, soldiers and whatever have. They, they learn how to tap into that to keep going. But at the same time, they stay very focused. It's not just that they're in survival mode and just making it. They're, they're performing at a very high level throughout the whole, throughout the whole thing. And that's, that's the key. Some people can, some people are strong enough to gut through something, but they're not making good decisions. They're just, right. you know, they're just moving, uh, for lack of a better you know, way to Once that, it. once that fatigue sets in and you're just exhausted, you're, they're in a position where they still have to focus and make decisions. So that's, that's such a valuable, cause that, that's not every call we go on in our career, but it could be the call we go on our career that we have to do that. Yeah, and on a much lower level physically, um, you know the old adage of you got to get out of your comfort zone, no matter what your job is. So if you're, you know, if you're uh, a designer or a architect or whatever, you get comfortable with designing single family houses, and that's what you do, and you don't ever really grow anywhere from that but you know tackle a commercial building or a or a you know a mid-rise or something like that and you're not going to want to do it because it's not your comfort zone but if you if you work your way through it yes it's going to be hard it's going to take a lot of your time but once you finish then you've got something to go back and 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 to build on so it it can the lesson applies all across it's just that something like smoke divers or something like that is the extreme of physical and mental, but the mental growth, if you don't challenge yourself and try new things, go read different things or whatever, then you get very, you get very stuck and, uh, and there's no growth at all. You know, you're just existing in that spot. Well, I could see one of the big obstacles from somebody stepping to the line and attempting the Georgia smoke diver program is the fear of failure. And I believe that's probably the biggest challenge we have within the fire service when it comes to our skill set. You know, like if I don't go out there and throw the ladder, then they don't know that I'm not good at throwing ladders. So instead, I'll just stay in here. And and it's almost like getting your getting past that point and looking at failure, especially in training, as part of the process of becoming a great firefighter. And in front of I think your it's peers, in front of your peers. Yeah, I mean, I had I had an instance where my ladder game was really weak and. I hit it for years until I finally recognized what I was doing. And I went to a probationary firefighter who was better at throwing ladders than me. And it was a double company house. So we had eight firefighters there and pulled them aside. He took me outside. And what happened? 
everybody came outside and was watching me fail at throwing ladders for 30 minutes, for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then it opened the door for all these other firefighters to start failing at throwing ladders because not everybody was dialed in. And I recognize that in myself. And that's what caused me to overcome that fear and seek out somebody who is much junior to me, but was really good at it. And I see that same thing with people who are looking at the Georgia Smoke Diver program and they're wondering like, am I, do I have what it takes? And they don't want to, it's almost better to never do it for them and just say, I never failed than to actually put themselves in that arena. So anybody who's attempted this thing, I have so much respect for whether they were successful or not, because I know what they overcame internally to even make the trip to attempt it. Yeah. And that's one of our, that's kind of one of our taglines that that we, uh, we use is when we've got the whole class of 40, 45, however many is in the initial day. And, you know, we talk about the, you know, the one out of a hundred, uh, spill where, where, you know, it's one person has that warrior type mentality out of a hundred, nine of them are, are really good and do a lot of good, good work. And then the rest of them are just sort of there. And we talk about that as an organization. It's just usually a small group of people that do the majority of the heavy lifting in any organization. Um, but you do, you can't do it all by yourself. So you do need other, other folks there to help you. So we, we cover that and we, and we talk about how some of them are going to, um, sit through a couple of our classrooms, uh, have lunch and then go out on the PT field and drop like within the first couple of hours. And, um, and they're going to have to go back to their station and people are going to have snide remarks about them and all, and always, always equip them with this. And I'll say, if somebody makes fun of you for not completing, I said, you had the guts to come here and show up. And I said, so you tell them that, they were too lazy to even make the drive down here and <laughs> good. And that goes over pretty good. So, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's tough. And of course, then the older you get, the harder it is. I mean, it's a young man's, it's a young man's game, but we have had some, some 50 plus people come through, not many, but you know, most of them are in their twenties and thirties. But, uh, once you, once you start getting up in the late thirties and forties, your recovery time is, is, uh, it's pretty bad. And so yeah. it's more, it's more painful. You know, it's, you're able, you, you can do it, but it's just more painful. More when lessons. You, when you go through <laughs> when you're 18 or 19, you're just too dumb to quit and you recover fast. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's all, it's all really good stuff. And, uh, and it does, it helps you along, you know, life's journey and, and any kind of adversity that you face. Well, I, I took the time to read, uh, Judy Glick's book, flow-based leadership. And they uh, really, she talked about the Georgia Smoke Diver leadership characteristics. And I'm just going to list them off here because uh, we could talk about them. But what I want to get to is how can this type of leadership model uh, be applied to a organization, to a fire department? Because what I love is that you you mentioned that you have 100 volunteers uh who are the instructors not getting paid. They're using their vacation time. They're doing trades. They believe in this thing so much. It's affected them so positively and changed their lives that they want to invest back into the next group. That is, that is service. That is service. That is the definition of service. And she writes here, she says, the characteristics are lead by example, communicate clearly, commit to a stable infrastructure, 
I love this one, buying to the group by cultivating trust. And I can't think of a better way to build it than suffering together. Like that's one of the easiest ways to to build trust. Honor individual creativity to innovate. So when somebody has an idea, you're actually being heard and, and respected and potentially it's being used. Use positive motivation techniques and then facilitate team flow. So Chief, I'd like to get your take on the the leadership model at the Georgia Smoke Diver Program, because it seems to be more of a like mutual respect amongst the group, uh, starting with the whole group has gone through it, right? That's such a, you don't get yeah. that in all these other leadership positions throughout the fire right. service. Like all these guys and girls have gone through it. So to talk to me about how you see that potentially making its way into the fire service, because based on what I read, I was inspired and I think it could really improve the fire service leadership model. Yeah. So there's no shortcuts. There's no tricks. Um, there's no legacy commitment. Um, all the things that are normal part of today's society, whether it's college admissions or um, whatever it is, it's strictly on you to accomplish. And the first thing you have to do is you have to you have to complete the course and graduate. That's the first thing. Then if you want to become an instructor, which is truly the organization, then you come back and you and you're an intern. Um, and obviously, some people come back at a higher skill level than others. Some may have been instructors for years and some are two year firefighters. So the structure is broken down to where there's really no rank in the structure. So it's it's very much like a like an incident management uh, team is designed by function, not by rank. And so, you know, obviously you could have an eye, you could have the incident commander that's a a firefighter or a lieutenant, depending on what their skill is, you know. Um, traditionally, it's probably a chief level officer because of their experiences. But, but you can, you can, you can be a, a battalion chief and be a new smoke diver and come back your first class and you're building smoke with the one year firefighter that, uh, you know, that went through your same class. Uh, you may spend two classes, uh, flipping hamburgers and cleaning toilets because all of that has to be done too. There's, you know, high levels of infection control. When you get a group together that big, if one person gets sick with a virus and it spreads through, then you hurt chances. So there's constant, you know, decontamination of tables and props and gear and all of that stuff. So maybe you're, you know, stuck in the, in the dredges of, of that. Um, one of my favorites is, uh, our medical crew. And, uh, we do urine tests with the students every morning. And so there's, you know, on Sunday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, there's anywhere from 45 to, you know, 35, um, specimen cups of urine sitting on a table when there's three guys in there getting the specific gravity and all. And we laugh about it. Like we're like, who's doing the wine tasting today? You know, um, what a crappy assignment, you know, but they realize how important it is to the function of the whole process. Because if one of those guys identifies somebody who is, you know, borderline on our limits, 
they can notify our EMS people. Our EMS people can go and do a, a more complex test to see if something was just false or if it's, and we can get them the things that they need, whether it's uh, 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 one of our oral IVs or, or whatever it is that they need. We can tell them, hey, you're in danger and you need to really watch this. And so and our goal is to make you successful. So it's all important. They're all valued. Um, we. We really have uh, the, the people that build smoke all day are revered, you know, in the organization. And it's like, uh, you know, the guys will be like, oh, that was good today, boys. That was something. Y'all put it on them today, you know, and uh, there's just so much to be done. And then, you know, as you work your way through, um, you do that for a few years and um, we'll typically lose a few people along that route. So let's say um, a class graduates with 20. And the first time they're able to come back, we might get 10 of them back. And then, you know, they're all doing pretty much, you know, support roles. And then the next year, there's seven or the next class, there's seven. And then it gets down over a course of five or six classes to where the two or three are usually there that are going to be there for the long haul. And, uh, and then they start shadowing in instructor roles. Um, and then they, we have task books. They have to get their task books checked off on all these different spots and they have to kind of prove themselves. There's a lot of consensus meetings. Uh, you know, we have a group called the board of elders and we talk about who should be in lead instructor roles and the lead instructors, you know, they're running small units. So they may be a firefighter with five or six years, but they're doing captain level work because they're in charge of five or six instructors. They got to make sure that all the all the the briefings are done. Uh, they've gone through all their pre mortems of what could go wrong, you know. Here and if somebody gets stuck here, how do we get them out? What if somebody goes down on this? Can somebody fall off of this prop? We we I mean we think it all the way through, and we're teaching those instructors a whole another mindset of how to operate too. Uh, and so the whole class is about overcoming adversity and being adaptable. But you can't do that unless your instructors can overcome adversity and be adaptable. And then that's where the trust is, is because you see it play out. And uh, one of the things that, that Miss Judy was like super, you know, just stoked about from a, being able to share with like a business community is we have so much trust in the instructor cadre that let's say you're teaching. Uh, subfloor rescue on on a Tuesday or whatever. It's pouring down rain. You're doing subfloor rescue. It's in the outline. This is what we do. We teach these two methods and then so and so so and so. But some student in the class says, Hey, have you guys ever seen it done like this? And they go, What? And then the student like shows them something and everybody looks at each other and they're like, holy crap, that's ten times better than what we're doing. They have the, they are empowered to change the class from that point forward and teach that new method. Okay. Wow. They, they go on their phone, they go on their phone and we call it a course improvement card. So the lead would back off and let somebody teach. They go on their phone, they go to the course improvement and they enter the information 
that they've made a change and that the outline needs to be updated. They can't update the outline right then. They might write some notes on it in the field or whatever, but they put that in the system and it goes to our plan section and our plan section is on alert. And then that paperwork may come back at the next rotation and the plan section will bang out a new outline and print it and have it back before the next rotation starts. And it doesn't happen like every day and and all, because it's rare that something that great comes along, but they are empowered enough to make that adjustment if certain criteria are made. They can't just change it to anything, but they have to have a little consensus and there's a, you know, they're going to bump it up to like the division supervisor or whatever and say, hey, we saw this, we're making this change, blah, 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 blah. And as long as it's not going to take longer to teach and screw up the rotations, um, even if they need additional equipment, they can get it from logistics and, and reset the props or whatever. But we want them to be constantly innovating and, and thinking. But from a practical standpoint, we don't want to just change for change's sake. But if something is better, we always want to be on the cutting edge of whatever the best is. Some people go to another conference and see something and then they'll, in the off season, they're like, Hey, I saw a better way to do this or, you know, whatever. I think we should tweak this. And then every now and then somebody comes in and says, Hey, what if we did this? And you're like, No, <laughs> no way. Yeah. And then, and they're like, Well, why not? It'll be awesome. Yes, it would be awesome, but you only have 45 minutes and there is no way you can get 10 people through that in 45 minutes. So that's a great drill. Let's do it at our development. Let's teach our instructors about it. Let them take it back to their departments, but it doesn't fit in our system, but they're still heard. And, you know, so that's good. It's self-policing and that, uh, you know, everybody has issues and I'm sure some people at some point feel like they're left out of a position or whatever. But if they just trust the process, it works. It works out and people get to do uh, what they want. Um, sometimes, you know, we learn valuable lessons like uh, we had a we had a guy that, that we were training, uh, shadowing to be in a position of super high esteem. Um, we call the, the person that is in charge of all the fire sets and all the the victim locations and all this runs like a football team. You know, this guy, we call him the fire master and they've got a crew of about 15, 20 guys and they're, they're resetting pallets. They're resetting and they're, they're, they're working with the safety officers on when to light the fires because a lot of it's timing for when the group's going to be where we want fire rolling down this hallway. So it's, it's a, it's a very, very important. And, and that, you know, we come, we come up with all these, you know, titles. It's very, it's very uh, almost Masonic-like in in terminology, you know. So right. it's like this guy's the fire master, you know. And then the the basically what would be sort of the sergeant major, or whatever's the smoke daddy, or you know, whatever. We got all those titles and rituals and things. And so uh, we're like, we put this guy in, and some things happen. We're having a conversation, and and all of a sudden the guy's like, well. I don't like doing this. And we were like, what? What do you mean you don't like doing this? No, I want to just be an instructor. I want to be with the students. Like I'm having to manage other instructors. I know it's important, but like 
my wheelhouse is like being over there teaching firefighter up and down ladder or whatever, whatever it is. And, and so we kind of laugh because it's like just when you think you got it all figured out, somebody slaps you right in the face and you go, <laughs> what? You mean we didn't know what was best for you? We didn't ever ask him. You know, shame yeah, on us. Yeah. We didn't ever ask him. We were just like, hey, man, we need you to do this. Blah, blah, blah. Yes, sir. Because he's a team player. Right. And he did yeah. a great job at it. He just wasn't enjoying it. Right. And so that's another lesson. It's like if you're no matter how how good of a thing you got going. Let somebody know what you're thinking, you know, because if you don't, then you're just going to end up getting mad at them because you're like you feel like you're getting left out of something if you don't communicate to them. and. You may not get what you want immediately, but, you know, that was one of my strategies as a battalion chief. I met with every firefighter in day. Do you want to work where you're working now? You know, there's a trick question. I'm like, no, what's your dream spot? What's your dream spot on the organization? I would write it down. I had it in a book. And if I ever saw the opportunities, I would match them up with the person. I wouldn't, I hated letting some people go. But some guy says, man, I want to drive truck 10. And it's in another battalion across town. I try to get him what he wants, you know, if it, come, if it comes up. So so that's another thing is, is balancing out that uh, that thing. We have a lot of, uh, you know, we debrief every night. Obviously, there's a social element to it, but everybody feels their part. We couldn't do it without the massive uh, donation of time. And that's everybody. That's not just one level. There is zero money taken from the association for anybody's personal gain. It is all back into the association. It's to pay taxes, insurance, buy materials, props, and and, and all of that. Nobody from the top all the way down gets anything, uh, anything from it. So that's an advantage in itself because we're fortunate in that Everybody that's a part wants to be there, where in your organization, you don't always have that. Some people have to be there or they're stuck there and they're trapped by, you know, they got to have a paycheck and they don't have anything else or what have you. So so it's a different, it's a whole different mindset. But the lesson there, I think, for any organization is hire the right people. <laughs> on the front end and it'll prevent a lot of problems on the back end. So if you have a if you have a standard and you and you assess people to that standard and hold them accountable, then they know what to expect through the rest of the time. And Bernicini used to say it all the time. The problem is we hire untrainable people and in five years they want to be officers because that's the way you move ahead, you know, in the organization. And so if you haven't hired the right people, then nobody passes the process. And so you have to lower the standard in order to get people to fill the positions. And then it's a downward spiral from there. So uh, that's what we get a lot of comments about, the fact that people like that. If we say you have to do 10 pull-ups on the qualification test and you do nine, you fail. There is no, I slipped, I you know, you get a you get a couple of attempts or whatever the you know the rules are, but it's like, you know, there's no excuses, there's no circumstances. It's like it is what it is, and it's over. You're welcome to come back and try again. You know, uh, it, it doesn't matter that you got a blister on your hand or you burnt your 
hand or you got a hangnail yesterday, it's, it is the standard. There's no exceptions to it. And so you put forth your effort and it is what it is. And, you know, we have to dismiss friends of ours who are signed up for the class because they couldn't meet the standard. Um, we've had several people, I mean, you know, several people's uh, siblings, um, you know, most recently we've had a couple of people, um, had a couple of husband, wife, firefighter teams. And so like some of uh, a couple of them's wives have come and not been successful in a thing. And it's like, you got to totally separate yourself from the, from the system, you know, a fire chief's son, it's like big somewhere or whatever. It's like, we don't care who you are. You know, it's, it's like, obviously it's not perfect, but it's like, it's such a great example of like, it doesn't matter who you are or what you, what color you are, what religion, how many years of experience you got. Here's the standard. And you're, you're on your own. You know, we don't care who your daddy was or, you know, that your, that your uncle was the mayor. None of that, that happens inside the, you know, a, a normal organization. That's, that's important stuff. You know, don't mess with him. His daddy was the mayor or, you know, his uncle's the fire chief and all that legacy stuff. It's like, it just doesn't happen. It's like, here's the standard and we, it sucks for you. And we hate to have to tell you goodbye, but it's going to be good for you. <laughs> Especially what if you I like, come back. it's mission focused. The mission comes first. You guys have a goal in what you're trying to accomplish. That's the mission and nothing compromises the mission. And there's a standard for you to be able to fulfill that mission. And you're not going to compromise it for anybody. And within that is just a sense of like every one of those instructors feels accomplished, valued, right? They feel like they're part of, we all, I believe humans, we all want to feel like we're part of something greater than ourselves. We wake up in the morning, like that's all in us. And I think some people get robbed of that when their Mm -hmm. organizations drop the standard and they celebrate mediocrity and they start to, they take away that opportunity for somebody to really become the best version of themselves because they've, they've lowered the standard organizationally to try to meet whatever they're trying to meet. And we just kind of get like, we are uninspired right. in, in a field that's all about the best people getting off the rig and, and, and going to work. So it totally makes sense. And I do, I do agree with you on the front end. If you could find a way to capture those people without having a, if anything, raise the standard, how great would that be? Like we have such high performers that we actually have to raise the standard now because they're getting bored. Like that's, yeah. That would be an amazing, amazing place to be as an organization. It makes sense. It's uh, it's inspiring to see that leadership model and the humility that comes from somebody who's a battalion chief and they're they're cleaning toilets and they know it's part of. They need to do that to fulfill the mission. It has nothing to do about how they feel. It has everything to do about what you, what everyone is trying to accomplish for these candidates to get the best out of this. To find out if you're there for the right reason, you know, and if you're there to sustain the program and help the candidates, then you'll do whatever it is that, that needs to be done. And, uh, and when you do that, then, you know, you, you prove yourself and you have a reputation so that people can trust you. If you get inserted, you know, if you just take a guy and insert him into the command role, nobody knows their capabilities or where their head is or whatever. And it's, and it's just not going to work, you know, uh, to sustain to sustain the the whole process on the raising the standard thing when we we used to 
uh, be affiliated with the state academy, and then they had their own rules. And it was uh, only two people per department could apply. And then whoever the first ones were the ones that we took. And the attrition rate was horrible. It was like 20, 30 percent completion rate. So we came up with this whole qualification day thing. And we said, well, look, let's do a couple of things. Let's, even though I hate written tests as a promotional item, it was like, let's do a written test just to see if the people will dedicate the time to study and, and have basic firefighter one knowledge. And we're only going to test you on, you know, fire attack search. We're not going to get into fire suppression systems and all this stuff. It's like just stuff that's pertinent to the class. And, uh, and I said, and what we'll do is the standard everywhere is that you got to make a 70 to pass. That's like the standard. I said, you're going to have to make an 80 to pass our test. So we used to have hundreds of people show up. And like the first time we gave the test, probably 60 people failed or failed it below a, below an 80. And, uh, you know, it was like guys from our instructors departments and all that. And they're like, Hey man, you know, I think we need to go with a 70. And you're like, I'm like, no, uh-uh. nope. It's an 80. We announced it was an 80. It's going to stay an 80. And so, um, you know, fast forward six months when we do the next qualification test, I think we only had one fail. And so it proves that if you raise the bar, people will respond to it. Now you can get crazy and say that you got to make a hundred, you know, <laughs> which is almost impossible to, to accomplish, but an 80 is definitely doable. 80% of, of basic firefighter knowledge on a test study questions are out there. You just got to apply yourself, you know, and, uh, and we've held that we've, you know, we've held that line. We've had a lot of conversations about it, but, We've held it right along the way. So people will rise to the standard. And I think even though it's painful, just like smoke divers or whatever, people actually like being held accountable. And once they get used to being held accountable, it's just another day. You know, I had to chew, had to chew out a group one time. Something happened and like it was bad. And so like I had to pull all the instructors and I mean, I freaking like unloaded. We will shut this program down. I don't care. We won't have a class if this happens, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, you walk out and one of the, one of the guys who did nothing wrong at all, he screams out. He goes, whoa, everybody needs some of that sometimes. <laughs> it, it fired him up. <laughs> right? Because you're on the path. If you're on the path, if you're on the path to, like we talked about, just – you want to be, you want to get the most out of yourself, the best version of yourself. That's part of it. That's part, being held accountable is a part of yeah. and nothing's accomplishing. Perfect. I don't want anybody no. to go away with thinking that we're perfect and everything works out. I mean, we make mistakes. There's things that happen. You know, what do they say? It's like um, some things, everything's not a hundred percent fair because you don't have all the information or whatever. But if you have the mindset to let the overall mission drive the intent and trust the intent. Don't get so personal that you didn't get to throw pallets today or you didn't get to lead the search class or whatever. It's like, hey, it'll work out for you at some point. Just keep showing up and and keep doing what you're doing. But if you're if you're so focused on that, then it's not about the student, it's about you and what you want. 
And and that's what we don't don't want, you know, is somebody who's just there for the bravado of, of you know, wearing the hat and the patch and all that stuff, which is what, you know, the majority of people think. But that's not that's really not what it's about. No, I have several good friends that have gone through programs, smoke diver programs, and everything they have said is echoes everything you're talking about. Just the the person they became through the processes uh, made them better husbands, better fathers, better friends, and and mm-hmm. that's quite an accomplishment to have a program that's yielding those type of results. Chief, we're going on about an hour and a half here. Yep. I want to value your time. I want you to uh, we'll kind of close this out. But what would you say to that? that person who's looking at the Georgia smoke diver program, we talked about the fear of failure. We talked about that probably being the biggest obstacle. Nowadays, there's so much information out there on the program that somebody could, you know, prepare adequately. They have Mm -hmm. everything they need to know. What would you say to that person who's kind of on the fence and they're just, they're just not sure they have what it takes, but they have that inside them to want to, to want to see, but they're just kind of, they're not a hundred percent committed. What would some of your advice be to someone like that? Sign up and show up. And let the process roll and don't, obviously we want you to succeed, but if all you think about is what's going to happen if you don't succeed, um, coming and attempting will be the first step of you becoming better, whether you ever come back or, or not. And, And, you know, obviously we want you to come back and we want you to be successful. But just sign up for the qualification, go through the process, and talk to other people who have been through and start building your network to get. You're not going to get the secret ingredients or anything because there isn't one. But like, start building your, your network of people who can help you prepare. And they will prepare you. They're not going to tell you what we're going to do do every second and hey when they tell you this on this day don't worry about it because they're you know they're just bluffing or nobody's going to do that you know they're going to help you work out and there's workout programs on all the websites that you can follow and all and they're going to want to see you succeed but the first step it's like anything else that you're worried about it's just like engage you know it's like like the movie top gun you know uh He's re-engaging, sir. You know, great. But everybody has that hesitation. But don't be afraid because one of the things that used to happen and, you know, it was a fault of the program is like uh, there was a time in the 70s and and 80s that like if you didn't make it, then it was just like, oh, you're not tough enough. You know, get out of here. And you, you, it didn't even tell you goodbye. It was just like, okay, get your shit and, and, and go to your car, check out of the dorm or whatever. Now it's like it, it's we sit down and interview and talk and give you strategies of what you what we saw and we're very honest with you. We'll print out the the sheet of comments from the instructors that you know here's the things that, that we see this guy you know wasn't doing or he needs to work on or whatever. We'll we'll give you that information and guide you down and we are available. Some people take us up on it, some don't. Like we've had people come and, and it took them five attempts to complete, it, you know, and uh, that's usually strictly mental or it could be by chance that maybe you got hurt, you know, but that's life. You know, you sprain an ankle every now and then and you, we're not going to kick you out 
exactly. You know, if, if the dot says, so it's going to suck, but it's not going to do any more damage to keep going, then it's up to you. And if it hurts too bad and you got to quit, you quit. But some people tape it up and keep going. Um, so if you do fail, then it lets you know right away that you're not prepared for that level. Then you got a, then you got a whole nother choice, you know. I tell people the same with like promotional tests. They're like, I don't know if I should take it or not. I'm like, sign up, sign up and take it. When, when you'll either pass it or fail it, but now you have options. So if you pass it, you don't have to take it. You don't have to take the job if you decide that's not what you want. But if you don't take it, then you don't have any options, you know. So sign up, take it, get there and, and don't worry about motivate yourself to want to succeed, but don't let the fear of failure consume your enthusiasm or your passion to get better because there's something, you know, there's a million things that those guys who are instructors and all may attempt that they would fail at if they weren't prepared. And, and, you know, that's a mistake. People will, People will leave the military ten years ago, and because they went through boot camp, uh, they think that they're going to be able to go through smoke divers, and they haven't prepared. They were in really good shape for boot camp, but they 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 didn't prepare. They're going off of past successes, and uh, and that's a common mistake. So talk to as many people as you can about the program. Follow, read every word on the websites, and whether it's Oklahoma, Indiana, or Georgia's program and there's a bunch of other great programs out there um that aren't affiliated with us and they're all different um i'm sure some of them aren't aren't good and some of them are great but i know about our three programs and there's enough information that if you'll consume it and and dedicate yourself to preparing that it'll give you a chance for for success and you'll really it's a self-evaluation i mean it is there's nothing like it so just if you're looking to improve your mental and physical fitness, join our community for only $5 a month. The cost of a cup of coffee, you'll receive a workout of the day, seven days a week, a daily inspirational message, seven days a week, a monthly training. But more importantly, you'll be surrounded by a community of like minded firefighters all on the same mission to become the best versions of themselves so that they could serve their community and their families at the highest level. Head over to patreon.com backslash fit to fight fire and join our community.